There must be a real unity amongst the elders this morning as Neil picks up on on threads of what I want to share. And I think that there's a, a real skill to join in the dots as God whispers a little bit over there, and then he whispers a little bit over there, and a little bit over there, but it always lines up. And uh, it's one of the reasons why when we've got to tune our antennas into what God's saying the, the moment we get to church in the mornings. So Neil dropped a scripture ad lib um, from 2 Peter 1, so I want to read it. It says this, 2 Peter 1, this is not in my notes, but it's in line with what I want to preach this morning. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything. And Neil said now is that the information would become revelation that would lead to a changed life. Russell Fraser loves the acronym RAT. Revelation with application leads to transformation. And so as you listen this morning to, to this preach, to this word that I feel God's stirring in me for us, that it wouldn't just be information that you're hearing, but that God would reveal something to you, that you would apply to your life and allow Him by the power of His Spirit to transform you into the image of Christ. I'd love to say that um, I think certain scripture is going to pop at you this morning. It might just be because we've, uh, we've got a new overhead projector, which is really incredible. And uh, I'd like to say, I think last, it was two weeks ago when it broke, or last week, and uh, you know, let me just misquote Romans 8.28, God works all things for, the, for, the, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we have a new projector this morning, and I'm hoping that it helps and assists certain scripture to stand out for you. So this morning's, this morning's teaching comes from the one that I did two weeks ago, which was so good. Thank you, Amy. Sometimes, sometimes the preach is not that good, but the love that the people have for you reads the preach and through a different grace. And I know Amy loves me because I stayed up late with Gideon shooting zombies the other night. It was quite fun. So there's a little confession. So two weeks ago, I preached about you living out God's purpose for your life, that you were selected before the creation of the universe and God planned a destiny for you that would bring glory to his name. I listed or highlighted um, after looking at all creation is for God's glory, that the way that you can walk into your purposes for your life, the specific calling for your life is by walking in the general. And as you walk with God in the general, he will direct you into the specific. The four points I gave were knowing God, listening to his voice, ridding your life of sin, and walking in family, in church, in the body of Christ. And afterwards, I was getting a little bit of feedback from Kim Muller, and he said, I believe there's another preach in your fifth point. And I thought, yes, what have I missed? Five points. I only gave four. And he said, you mentioned the lotus, and there was something in that that I feel like God wants to unpack to you. So this morning, well, I went away and I was confused. I was like, what does that even mean? Like, what am I going to preach out of the lotus? And really wrestling with God this week and, 
And um, where was it going now? The fifth point of the lotus. I mentioned that with the lotus, it received a new engine, a new heart. It received a new ECU, that thing which controls the thinking of the car, the electronic control unit. It's been tuned in to run well. But what I felt God say is this. Kim said to me, what would your life look like? Give us practical example of what your life would look like as you walk into the purposes that God has for you. And I was thinking and thinking. And then one of my quiet times during the week, the Lord drops on me. I'm reading in John 20, verse 21 and 22. A lot of these scriptures aren't going to go on the board. So if you want to write them down, you can check me up later. <clears throat> and Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's reappeared um, to his disciples. He's now given them a new mandate. What do I want you to do as my apostles, disciples? And in John 20, verse 21 and 22, he says, Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, Scripture dropped into my heart and became revelation. I, as a disciple of Jesus, and I will unpack this later, have received the exact same calling as that of Jesus Christ. Without the cross. The life I live, if my life follows the purposes of God, my life should reflect that of Jesus Christ. Because he said, the Father sent me, and now I'm sending you. Okay. And so, Carl prayed for me earlier in the prayer meeting, and he said, I feel like you've been wrestling with Scripture. I think very often we don't, we don't grasp the gravity and the weight of Scripture and what it really means. When Neil dropped, all things have been given to you for life and godliness. What does that mean? It means that you and I, who are in Christ, lack nothing. Nothing. But how often do we appropriate that through our lives and allow the truth and the weight of God's Word to transform us into the image of Christ? And so this morning, I'm hoping that I can drop some truths that I've been wrestling with the whole week onto you. So here's where I want to start after that lengthy intro. Do you know that you can only belong to one bloodline? You can only have one father. I know that that's confusing in today's day and age. We know a lot of families where potentially there are two fathers. However, every child is born of one seed. No matter how many fathers you have, you're born of one seed and you fall into one lineage. The first scripture I want to throw up is 1 Corinthians 15. I think, um, we know that Adam walked with God in the Bible, and then as Adam ate the fruit, that there was fall and sin entered the world. And from that moment, natural and flesh became born of Adam. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 to 22, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
I forgot to mention that what I want to do today is not tell you how to drive. I'll give you practical hints on how to drive fast as a car. But before I can do that, I need to convince you that you are the race car. So that's what I'm going to start with. I'm going to convince you three different ways that you are the righteousness of God and that God has positioned you in Christ to do incredible things to look like him. And then you can, you can put your foot on the accelerator, but I'm going to convince you first. So the thing is that because we are born of the seed of Adam, we fall into the flesh. Now, it gets even worse than that. If you're born into a lineage, you have one father. In John 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you are of your father, the devil. He says, in John 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. But Jesus comes, and we read of the first Adam, that Adam where the seed and the lineage was a fallen one. It was prone to sin. Your nature is prone to sin. And then he says, I am the second Adam. Where the first Adam fell short, I will achieve what God has sent me to do and walk out God's purpose for my life. And so you're either in the first Adam and your father is the devil and your destination is your father's house. Or you can be born again, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John 3 and says you can be born again into a new lineage, the seed of the second Adam, God's seed, and he becomes your father, and your destination becomes your father's house. Okay. It says in John 1 verse 11 to 13, he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That means that if you're in second Adam, if you're in Jesus Christ, you literally have a new birth where you are born of the seed of God. The same way that the Holy Spirit came over Mary and impregnated her, as a mystery that is just beyond us, you, God forms a new creation, a new nature inside you, but you're given it in a second because you cannot have two fathers. You're in one or the other. So what about the old nature? What about the flesh nature, the sin nature, that which was in Adam? Because surely you can't be two people. Well, it says in Romans 6 verse 3, well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We, therefore, were buried with him through baptism into his death in order that, just as Christ was raised to life through the glory of God, so, too, we may live a new life. 
So Jesus doesn't only bring you a new life, but he actually deals with the old life. He says that if you're in Christ, not only am I giving you new life, but I'm killing the old one. That nature, that sinful nature gets crucified with Jesus on the cross. And we go from a nature of sin to a nature of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That means if you're born again, you are the righteousness of Christ. We all know the scripture. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. Paul says it so well, and he summarizes in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live through the faith, through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul recognizes that he is dead to who he was, but that the life he now lives, Jesus flows through him. All of the life that's in him is Jesus' life. Okay. Interestingly, in Romans 13, it says, clothe yourself with Christ. And as I read that, I, I, I thought for the first time, do you remember when um, Jacob and Esau wanted to get the inheritance and the blessing from the father? What did Jacob do? He clothed himself in something that felt like Esau. It was a skin of a... Someone will shout the answer. It wasn't a bear skin. It was a skin of something, a sheep, a goat. And then he puts on Esau's clothes. So as he enters his father's presence, he feels like Esau, and he smells like Esau. And in that place, he receives Esau's blessing. Interesting. And when we enter the presence of the father, we no longer, we don't have to deceive the father. The word Jacob means deceiver, actually. We don't have to deceive the father. He can see straight through us. But he said, I want you to be clothed in Christ. And so as we step into his presence, we receive the inheritance and the blessing that was on the older son, that was Jesus. It's beautiful. Okay, so the first thing I want to say to you is, if you believe in Jesus and you put your trust in him, you are born again. You're the righteousness of God. Seal it. Okay, you don't have to keep going back. You don't have to work it out. You're the righteousness of God. That's the first way I want to convince you that you are the race car. You are in Christ. The second way I want to say is that when you believe in Jesus and you put your trust in him, you become a disciple of Jesus. Oh, well, some of us from a very early age read about the 12 disciples, you know, in Sunday school. So maybe there were only 12 disciples. I want to convince you that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let me first go to Wikipedia and uh, type in what was, what was a disciple. A disciple in the ancient biblical world actively imitated, actively imitated both the life and teaching of the master. It was a deliberate apprenticeship which made the fully formed disciple 
a living copy of the master. Jesus agrees with Wikipedia. Because in Luke 6 verse 40, he says, The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And so, discipleship was not a new concept to them. We don't really see discipleship. We see accountability and mentorship, and we are called to make disciples. It's funny, we don't... I've never been called a disciple of another man, okay? But... We're called to go out and make disciples. So it's very interesting um, that this word is used. And John the Baptist had disciples. His disciples, actually, when they saw the Messiah, and John declared he was the Messiah, they left John and they started to follow Jesus because they recognized, I don't want to be like this man. He's just the bridegroom. or uh, Not the bridegroom, the best man. I want to follow the bridegroom. The Pharisees had disciples. And Jesus had disciples. In Matthew 4, we see Jesus calling his first disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus initially calls disciples. And what does he say? He doesn't say, I'm going to give you another document. 300 points to follow. Because if you're going to look like me, or you're going to be my disciple, you need to follow all these sets of rules. What Jesus does is he calls people into his life, and he draws them close. He lives with them. He walks with them. He teaches them. He heals their mothers-in-law. He raises some from the dead in front of them. He heals blind eyes. And the disciples follow him and watch his way of life. But they don't follow him and think, "Ah, this is what I need to do in order to be a disciple. They just follow him. Discipleship is not about learning a set of rules. It is about walking with a person in order to learn as much as you can so that you can fully imitate that person. So those are the 12. Jesus calls 12 men and he calls them his disciples. What about you and I? Well, interestingly, there were 12 apostles initially, eyewitnesses. But first they were disciples. Jesus said, come follow me. I want you to fish the way that I fish, not the way that you fish. We'll fish for something that has a real value. Only in Luke 6 does Jesus go later up the mountain, prays to the Father, and then delegates 12 apostles. So actually, initially, when Jesus calls you, you're a disciple. We read in Acts 6, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So now this is after Jesus has died there continues to be more and more disciples being produced. And in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus gives the mandate, and he says, Go, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are always at work in discipleship, and teaching them to obey 
everything. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. So we are called to be disciples of Jesus. This comes at a massive cost. Very often the, the gospel that's preached is, is um, we just want people to make a commitment to Jesus and we don't actually give them the full story, but that's not how Jesus taught us to make disciples. We'll read now from Luke 14, but if we're going to look like Jesus and all of us want to look like Jesus because we want to do the miracles, we want to have the life, we want to have the power of the Holy Spirit, but if we're going to look like Jesus, we are going to look like Jesus, which means when people hated him and put a crown of thorns on his head and even killed him, that could be what Jesus has for your life as a disciple. Very interestingly, when Jesus calls Saul to become Paul, Saul is persecuting the church, and a man named Ananias knows that he's going to pray for this guy, and the father says, or the father says to um, Ananias. Don't be scared to pray for this guy. I will teach him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. We look at the life of Paul, and Paul, if I look at Paul's life and you put the name Jesus there, they're interchangeable. Paul became a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he grew and grew and grew into that image. And a part of his calling was to suffer. So in Luke 14... Jesus is addressing the crowds and the people are following him and they see seeing the miracles and they're eating of the loaves. And he talks about discipleship. He says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, Neil also dropped this in the prayer meeting this morning, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The problem is that the word Christian is a little Christ. It's a disciple. There's no, there's no way around becoming a lukewarm Christian. Because in Revelation it says that God will spit you out. He'll vomit you out of his mouth. A disciple is one. Hating is contradictory. But what the language is trying to say is, you love your mother, you love your father, you love your wife and your kids, you'll do anything for them. But in the comparison to the way that you love me, the love that you have for them should look like hate. It's worlds apart. Be prepared to give up all that you are for my sake and for my glory. And after that, this is why I said we don't preach like Jesus preached. He says after that, he says, if a man's going to build a tower, does he not first sit down and work out if he is enough to finish the tower? Because if he builds the foundation and doesn't have enough to finish, he will be mocked by everyone. Or if a man's going to war, or king's going to war, and then he speaks about that, you've got to weigh up the weight of what it is to follow Jesus. It is going to cost you everything. Because if you're going to be his disciple, he's going to form you into his image. And part of his image was suffering for the glory of God. We don't have to go to the cross. Jesus did that. But we will have to suffer for him. Are we prepared to do that? But 
when Jesus says, come follow me, come, come into my bloodline, come into all that I am, be found in me, you become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I think that today I look more like Jesus than I did when I first became his disciple because I've walked with him and I've grown accustomed to his voice and I've learned who he is. Jesus is not saying that your life needs to look 100% like his the moment that you commit to him, but you must be willing to leave your boats and your father and your nets and follow him. And he might not ask you to leave that stuff, but if he does, you must be willing to leave it. So the first thing is that you are in Christ. You have a new identity. The second thing is that Jesus has called you to be a disciple. You are going to look like him. One day, perfectly, but even now, you should be growing in the image of Christ. Romans 8 verse 29. We have been, um, God, he's conforming the image of Christ in us. And the verse before that says, um, that God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then 29 says that we're going to be conformed into his image. That means that the good that, that what happens in your life, the good that it might be, is that the image of Christ forms in you. That means that Jesus may bring along your path suffering and persecution. Why? Because the good is that you look like Jesus. Jesus, take this... Even Jesus, Father, take this cross from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And so the image of Christ that he will form in us is a, is a, um, a dependence on God and submitting to his will. So we are disciples. We're in Christ and we're disciples. The third thing is, even to walk out that journey, to walk with Jesus. Okay, so we've got Jesus now. We're walking behind him as disciples. It is impossible to walk out that journey with only Jesus. But, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, He has given us everything for life and godliness. Jesus didn't say, become my disciple and walk it out, do it on your own. He said, I will give you everything you need. Every tool that was at the disposal of Jesus is at your disposal. You're given everything that was in Christ. The first thing that he gives you is another person in the Trinity. He gives you the Father. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. And what is the first thing he says? Our Father. God went from being distant and a God to being in a personal relationship. So now you're in this intimate personal relationship with the Father. And you're walking with Jesus. The third thing that he gives is the third person of the Trinity, and that's the Holy Spirit. In John 20, we already read that when we got Jesus' mandate, when he said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you who breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, now wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift that my Father is going to give you. And the disciples wait, and they pray, and the whole place shakes and tongues of fire come down and they baptized in a moment with the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes from being a reed to a rock. He goes from cowering away from a servant girl to being able to stand up in front of the high priest and say, you crucified the Lord of life. There's a boldness that comes on him. For us to be commissioned to go, we have to go as we follow Jesus in the power of his Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus even said, it's better that I go. In fact, in Romans 8, the Spirit is the litmus test for us. It says, You are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. It's simple. You either have the Holy Spirit and you're saved, or you don't have the Holy Spirit and you don't belong to Christ. Those who are the children of God, as many as those who are led by the Spirit, are the children of God. You cannot be led by the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. You cannot follow God and follow Jesus if you don't have the Spirit. It is the Spirit who impregnated Mary. It is the Spirit who brings you new life. So, I'm not saying that as a heavy, okay? I'm saying that you have him. (laughs) It's an encouragement. You have the fullness of the power that raised Jesus from the dead living in you. God's own spirit dwells in you in no decreased measure to that which Jesus had him. It's just we need to learn to appropriate it. We've been given everything. We've been given his inheritance, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's Romans 8. We've been given the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16. Okay. So hopefully I've convinced you. I'm almost there. Hopefully I've convinced you, if you are in Christ, called to be a disciple of Christ, and equipped with everything that Jesus had, what do you think your life could look like? And what is God's purpose for your life? Your purpose is to reflect Jesus 100%. And that's exciting. Because if that sinks in, it means anything is possible. Get this picture of like Neo going down and then like (laughs) up into the air in the matrix. It's when this stuff drops and you're allowed to apply to your life that you'll be transformed and you'll actually start to live this stuff out. So let's see practically what our lives should look like. We're going to go to Luke 4, verses 18 to 19. And I know that you'll read this because you know it, and you'll say, but hold on, Mark. Jesus read this in the tabernacle or in the synagogue, and uh, it applies to Jesus. Okay, I've just convinced you. It applies, this applies to you. If you're going to walk like Jesus, this applies to you. So it says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now, now, read this as if it applies to you. He has anointed me, Mark, to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just as Jesus called the disciples to go from fishing for fish to become fishers of men, God's heart and purpose and plan for your life is that you work, that you live out the unfinished work of Jesus. Hold on a second. Wasn't the work of the cross finished? Yes, it was. The work of the cross was finished. But Jesus is continuing to work. He hasn't stopped. He will stop. Once his patience is done and he wraps up this entire world. But right now, the work of Jesus is to form the image of himself or for God's work is to form the image of Jesus into you, into you and into me. He's still working right now. 
That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's forming us into His image. And He's calling us to partner with Him. We become co-heirs of Christ to partner with Him in this work. Paul says, it's incredible, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, and Paul got it. He wasn't perfect. He says in Philippians 3, not that I've already achieved all of this, but I strain towards that for which Christ Jesus has called me, for that reason which he took hold of me. I bluffed that one a little bit. But, and Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can I say to you, Isaac, imitate me. Come follow me, Isaac, as I imitate Christ. Paul got ahead a revelation that in Christ, he reflects Christ. And he was, lived a surrendered life to the point where he was willing to say, you can follow me. Because when you look at me, you'll see a life that looks like the life of Jesus. So, six points of what our lives look like. You can leave that scripture up. The first one is, if we're going to imitate Jesus, we will live in a, a loving relationship with God the Father. Everything in our lives should point back to the Father, to His glory, to His will. The Spirit of the, who is on me? The Spirit of the Lord, that's God. You've received His Spirit. You're in relationship with Him. The Father's given you things. You can ask whatever in His name. You can go directly into the Father through the Son. You can pray to the Father. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who's in heaven. You have direct access to God, the creator of the universe, as your dad. When people see us, do they see people who love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength? Because they can. Because you've been positioned in Christ. The second thing that Jesus came to do was to love people. The whole mandate to go and make disciples, all of this to preach good news to the poor, it is coming out of a place of love. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He spent his time with prostitutes and tax collectors. He spent his time with Pharisees. He spent his time with his own disciples. Everything he did was for the glory of the Father, but came to serve and love people. Our lives can look like that. Lives laid down for people. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. And Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we love God and we love people. That's God's purpose for your life in Christ. The third thing is that we advance the kingdom. As people come, Jesus came, performed many miracles to, dis to, to show that the kingdom of God had come. And to pull people into that kingdom. To see people go from death to life. From darkness into light. And so you're in my life. He's equipped us. And the Holy Spirit has empowered you with radical gifts, healing, prophecy, signs and wonders, words of knowledge, raising the dead, whatever it is, as a, 
as a sign that the kingdom has come. And if we are going dis- to show people that the kingdom has come, we need to know that we can start to walk in those things. And we need to start trusting for it. Mark 16 says, Jesus talking to his disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. When was the last time you believed that? I'm challenging myself now. I'm I'm ministering to myself. When was the last time I laid my hands on someone and said, be healed in Jesus' name? I'm not going into the theology of healing right now. I'm just saying when was the last time? Because if I see Jesus doing it, I should be doing it in a measure. Make disciples is the fourth thing. Love God. Love people. Advance the kingdom. Use whatever tools are at your disposal by the Holy Spirit. Make disciples. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, Paul is speaking to Timothy and he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. When Jesus sends us out in uh, Matthew 28 18, he says, um, He says, Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. My mandate is not to just bring people into the kingdom. My calling on my life is to make sure that the image of Christ is formed in them. As I'm walking more and more into the image of Jesus and becoming a disciple, I should be making disciples of others. That's not a one-touch wonder and you walk off. That means you have people in your life. You walk with people. Okay, it's all about people. The fifth thing is that your life, you should love the bride of Christ. Jesus gave his life for individuals, but he, he's, he's washing and preparing and lays down his life for this incredible mystery that is the bride of Christ. Do you love the church? Or are you happy with your own relationship with Jesus only? It's not God's intended design. Jesus came for the church. He's coming back for the church. People make up the church. You can't just have a relationship all on your own with Jesus and not love the church. I'm not saying that, like Paul, not that we fully grasp this or that we've already attained it, but these are the things that we strain towards and we try to take hold of because this is why Jesus has taken hold of us. And then the last thing. We appropriate his victory over Satan here on earth. In Luke 10 verse 19, Jesus says, I've given you authority. We see, we see Jesus. If you see it, all that you have to do is think, what did Jesus do? And you must know, if I'm in Christ, I can actually also go for those things. We see Jesus casting out demons all the time. Legions of them from one guy. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. When was the last time you prayed for someone and saw a demon set free, set free of a demon? Or are you intimidated by demons? I'm here today to tell you that if you're in Christ, you have his authority. Because it's not your authority, it's his authority coming through you. You're in Christ. And my last scripture 
And I'll land it here. Do you have it? Acts 4. Acts 8. Acts 8 verses 4 to 8. Can't get it. Can you get it? Acts 8 verse 4 to 8. And I'm, I'm, I'm dubbing this normal Christianity. Here's a man that we look at. Neil preached on him last week. 4 to 8. He's not an apostle. He's a follower of Jesus. He loves Jesus. That's his qualification. Acts 8, 4 to 8. Because I want you to see it. I don't want you to see it only in Paul, only in Jesus. I want you to see a normal guy who follows Jesus. This is after the persecution. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he'd done. Normal Christian, miraculous signs. They all paid close attention to what he said. He taught them. He proclaimed freedom from, for the captives. He set people free. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Healings, paralytics, cripples. doesn't say raising of the dead, but come on. Philip was there long enough. I'm sure he raised someone from the dead. It's happening now. We know of people who've raised people from the dead. The thing is that when I read those things, I, I desperately desire for my life to look like that. But it, the beauty is, it's on offer to me, and it's on offer to you. Not for elders, not for deacons, for disciples of Jesus Christ. Because you're in Him, you're His disciple, and He's equipped you with everything that you need to do these things. So, this morning, you are the race car. You may be parked in the garage, but you are the race car. Put your foot on the accelerator and push it as hard as you can go. And take hold of those things for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of your life. And when you end your days and you go to be with the Lord, people will say of you, if you saw him, you saw Jesus, because that's what's on offer to you. You just have to grab it.